0: My guest, Chris Hoffman, is the president and CEO of Hoffman Brothers, a home services business based in St. Louis that has scaled from $10 million in 2015 to over $100 million in revenue today in 2023. We talk about how that journey happened, their experience building executive teams, investing in people through a training university they started for ongoing training, and investing activity in home services today. We also talk about what perpetual non-private equity ownership enables them to do, including their unique strategy for managing cash, investments, and liquidity as a growing family office. This was a ton of fun for me and I hope you enjoy this conversation too. Every CEO and entrepreneur needs support from a team of expert professionals like attorneys, bankers, and accountants like could strong. Less often mentioned but just as important is insurance and August Felker and his team at Oberly Risk Strategies are the experts you need on your team to navigate the insurance needs of your company as dozens of past podcast guests have partnered with them to do. Oberly helps you evaluate what your current and soon-to-be-acquired company needs for insurance today, while also anticipating what it might need tomorrow. To get in touch, email august at august.felker at overly riskcom or visit their website at oberly riskcom And now for some advice and observations on insurance for small companies, here's August himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. Can I just roll the insurance from the company I just acquired
1: into my ownership of that business? That's a great question. So one of the questions we get from our clients a lot is, you know, hey, can't we just take the existing insurance that's there and just keep it through the ownership transition? And the answer really is is not typically. First off, insurance is not assignable. So they the insurance carriers that insure the current business want to make sure they know the owners of that current business, what that current business does. So they, they don't allow for the insurance program to automatically be assigned to another entity. And that would be the case if it was an asset deal. So in an asset deal, 9.9 times out of 10, the insurance carriers will require a brand new insurance program to be created. And so that, that's something to really think about and know and get started on ahead of time. In a stock deal, where the um, sort of the, I would say the FEIN stays the same throughout the ownership transition, a lot of the insurance carriers still have protection because they want to make sure they know who that new owner is and are uncomfortable about just um, continuing to insure someone through through an ownership transition. So they have like these change in control clauses where if there is a change in ownership, they have the right to cancel the policies. So those are two big things to look out for as you're as you're buying a business is to get started early because more times than not the insurance is gonna need to be rewritten. Great. Thank you, August. To
0: learn more about Oberly Risk strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other show sponsors, Hood and Strong, Ravix Group, and Oakborne Advisors, for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I would love to talk all about the Hoffman Training University program that you've developed. There's it seems like a pretty exciting way to solve that kind of people and recruiting and talent function as the company grows. At what point in your growth trajectory did you start that program?
2: Yeah, so I think it'd be useful just as an introduction, Alex, I think it'd be useful to maybe share a a little bit about our story and and to do that, I'd take you back to 1988 and just spend a few minutes telling my dad's story and then fast forward to 2016 and really talk about the recent interval, recent period of time. To, so to start, I'll, I'll take you back to 1988. And my dad was a mechanical engineer working at Anheuser busch I'm sure you've had their products, Budweiser, Bud Light, Bush, the like. But he, he, one of the last projects he did there was work closely with a mechanical contractor to design an air conditioning solution for a number of their facilities. He really liked his exposure to heating and cooling. So he he decided to put in his notice at A B and he enrolled in Rankin, which is a local trade school, and enrolled in their evening program, and then took a job working for a gentleman named Bob Lenton back in nineteen eighty-eight. And and he would Robert would go on to buy Bob's business that year. So he became the owner of a, a four person heating and cooling shop after being the, the first engineer to graduate from this trade school program and, and jumping right into a service van. And in nineteen eighty eight, you know, the, the trades weren't always held and, and I think as high of a regard as they are held today. I think some people would have said he was is crazy for doing that at the time, but he was an entrepreneur. He loved it. He had a ton of respect, and we we as a family have a ton of respect for the work that our teams do in the trades. So fast forward, 2016, we joined an organization called NextStar Network, and it's a, a really remarkable and, and unique organization. I guess it would have been December of 15 we joined, but it's, it's member-owned, and it has members across the United States, Canada, and Australia- and these members, there's roughly 750 of us, it, we we share very openly all of our, our processes, our best practices, and we we all pay dues and fees to this organization so that they can hire an amazing group of trainers. I think they've got 50 or 60 full-time team members who are process-focused experts, trainers, and the like. And they, they look out across a membership base. They identify who's really excelling in different parts of their business. And then they take those lessons learned and those best practices back to the the parent organization and they update what I like to call a a process playbook. So these processes touch every part of our business from how we answer phone calls to how we prioritize our service calls to how we dispatch those service calls, what we do in customers' homes, our pricing tools. So when we got access to this playbook in 2015, we just started implementing with vigor and and we were excited about it because that, that playbook would launch what has turned out to be now our seventh consecutive year of over thirty percent organic growth. So as our business has sort of traversed the the ten million to now hundred and ten million dollar revenue sort of size spectrum that this I really attribute this playbook and our ability to implement it well. I think that's been the big driver of our success.
0: Yeah, I've heard of Nextstar before from a couple of previous podcast guests who are who work in HVAC and, and home services. It's a pretty unique organization to have like a consortium of operators all sharing practices, playbooks. And it sounds like a lot of kind of financial margin and some other financial data that comes into that too.
2: Yep. They have, a, they have a survey every year that members can participate in. It's called the Peer Profit Comparison. So if you participate and you sort of convert your financial results into their standardized format, upload them, then you get access to this Peer Profit Comparison Report that typically has a couple hundred participants every year. But it segments and benchmarks by trade, by size of business, by geography, sort of all the different financial characteristics that accompany home service businesses like ours.
0: I find these companies fascinating like any sort of data business like this is definitely something up my alley. Have you seen businesses like Nextar in other industries before? There must be others.
2: There has to be, but you know, I've asked this question. I'll talk to other entrepreneurs in other spaces and I'll be and I'll say that same thing. I'll be like, "Oh, you just got to go find your Nextar." And they're like, "I don't know what you're talking about. That doesn't exist in our space." But so, I've come to I think learn that that organizations like Nextstar are perhaps not not quite as common as I originally had thought. yeah,
0: it's pretty impressive. well, let's talk a little bit more about the kind of that that ten to hundred and ten revenue growth story that you you described and alluded to within Nextstar and joining that program. Are there certain parts of that program or certain decisions you made that
2: have really enabled a lot more scale as you grew. Yeah, you know. So NextStar, they they have a, a sort of member engagement ranking that every member gets gets sort of rated on their engagement with the organization. And engagement is measured by how many of of sort of the core processes of NextStars that that a member has implemented in their business. And what we've what we've learned and what's clear, what has become very clear, is that there is a strong positive correlation. Between member growth rates and their engagement within the NextStar process playbook, so those members that are more engaged, embracing those processes, putting them in their business, have higher growth rates. It's been a couple of years since I've looked. Candidly, I think it was pre-COVID, but but at the time, I remember NextStar, the 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 sort of median NextStar member was growing in the mid-teens growth rates. So I think 15, 16, 17 percent in an industry if you just look at our industry classification code that's maybe growing at five or six percent per year so certainly outperforming the the universe of, of uh, service contractors that exist in the space so I think it speaks to the the effectiveness of, of the processes. That, that NextStar follows, but to to your more specifically to your question, there's not really one magic bullet. I, I've been asked that question where it's you know wh- wh- what's the secret sauce that that allows you to have sustained you know high growth in, in this industry, and, and the reality is it's doing a bunch of small things right. It's doing a bunch of the the basic things well. All the processes that I that I alluded to when talking about NextStar, it's dialing that stuff in, being process focused, and then lay on top of it a great culture, a a great leadership development program, a great sort of talent development more broadly program, and creating an awesome culture. I think process, culture, getting the right people and leaders in place, it's all hard, and not one of them, any one of those things, is more important than the other. It's just you got to be able to do them all and do them all well, and if you can, I think. it can create some pretty, pretty remarkable results.
0: Yeah, well, I want to make sure we talk about the leadership program later on. But one thing I think that's so interesting about Hoffman Brothers is being run by the family. There's not a larger PE backer behind the business. When you look at perhaps there's some of these peers in Nextstar that you're aware of or other entrepreneurship organizations like YPO or EO, but when you look at peers of yours who are backed by private equity, or maybe even search fund backed, what differences do you spot either in structure or the way they make decisions, or any other aspects of the business that you notice that are different from the way you run your business?
2: Yeah, it's been interesting that the universe of companies that are at scale, and I'll say north of $100 million in the HVAC plumbing world, residential service, has shrunk dramatically. When, when I'm, I'm talking about independent companies, companies that aren't owned by a consolidator or, or a private equity firm, and I think that's created a, a unique opportunity for those businesses that are choosing to remain private, right, swimming against the current and and not you know going left when everybody else is going right. And, and I think some of the ways that that private ownership shows up in our business is we think about value creation over a completely different time horizon when we think about investments in our business. We're not time bound by fund life cycles and we're not always preparing for an exit every 36 or 48 or 60 months, which can lead to a set of short-term decisions that sort of accompany that, that preparation to exit And and candidly, I think being privately held creates an opportunity for us as owners to create a better employee experience, right? When we think about how we define success in our business and who our stakeholders are that we're trying to drive wins for, it includes our team members very prominently. And if you think about our journey from 10 to 110, not only did we create a great win for the organization with respect to our financial metrics and characteristics, but during that same time period, we went from not paying for health insurance, to paying 100% of health insurance for team members and their entire family. So, almost 18000 per employee that I pay for family coverage. I have a 401k match that we, we significantly enhanced and improved over that time period. We give everybody 15 days of vacation on day one, nine paid holidays. We eliminate the 24-hour on-call that typically accompanies our industry, right, where folks are, are running calls at midnight and 1 a.m. and 2 a.m., and then they have to get up for their call at 7 a.m., which was really disruptive to their home life when they're they're working really hard during the day and then they get home with their family and they're pulled away again. So we keep asking ourselves, how can we just continue to drive wins? We had to paid parental leave for new fathers and new mothers. I mean, I could go on, but we keep asking ourselves as we keep driving wins for this business, how do we be very clear around our ability to connect the wins that our business achieves with our ability as a business to drive wins for our team members? And I think we've connected those do- those two dots together really, really strongly. And I think our team knows that when they they work really hard and create exceptional outcomes through the organization, the organization's going to be there to take care of them. And I think that that commitment is largely a function of our our private ownership and and, and really family's view of ownership which is that we're stewards of this business and we're going to put the, the interests of this organization and the team that's driving that success ahead of our our own personal interests as, as shareholders and owners.
0: How do you feel like that's affected retention, culture, morale from boosting benefits and removing the 24-hour on-call piece and any other aspects you've done to make life easier?
2: Yeah, so we've seen a lot of talent get pushed towards us. As a function of of sort of the the private equity game, right? There's a lot of change that happens, and and it creates turbulence in in the team member experience at those organizations. So it's a, a lot of talent has been pushed towards us with it, which I I think is is helpful. But ask your question one more time, because I want to make sure I answer it explicitly.
0: How has your investments in people and benefits impacted morale?
2: Yeah. So we, we measure, we do a lot of engagement surveys, like a lot of organizations. Most recently, we just found out about four weeks ago here in 2023, we just won another Best Place to Work Award recognition in, in the Business Journal in St. Louis. And we purchased a lot of the data in connection with that. And we we look at our engagement scores. We look at team member satisfaction. We look at the drivers of, of what's causing folks to stay engaged. And this stuff matters a ton to people. if all if your solution to everything with your team is is uh, either solve it with money or solve it with uh, something other than having a really purpose-driven culture, I, I think you're missing the opportunity to connect really deeply with your team members and galvanize the team around an exciting purpose. To that point, you know we we think about, of course, we have to be phenomenal when it comes to pay and benefits. Those are sort of the building blocks, and we're we're a top decile company. We've been very intentional about saying we are going to be top of the market, so we can get the very best talent. But then, when you layer on top of that a really compelling purpose and values, which is what we've done, I think it it, it makes the team really rally towards something greater, greater than just the paycheck, greater than just that service call they're on. And when I think you can, you can cultivate that kind of culture and there's cultural consistency that comes from, from ownership consistency, I think that leads to, to, I think, really, really good outcomes when it comes to your people, retention, ability to hire. Uh, our, our retention rate on a trailing 12 trail basis is in the, the mid to upper 80s, which is really strong in the trades. And I think, I think it's something that we've been pretty proud of.
0: Is there anything that surprised you going through all this data about retention and some of these changes?
2: Typically when 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 I see high turnover, more often than not, the answer isn't pay, the answer isn't benefits. You know, we do exit interviews, and it's a lot easier when you're leaving a company and you don't want to burn the bridge to say, Oh, you know, it's just I got this other opportunity I can't say no to. It's closer to home. All these external factors. They don't what people don't want to say is, you know what? I really don't like my leader. My leader doesn't support me. I'm not connected. I'm not engaged. My company doesn't care about me. No, but that's a hard conversation to have. So in exit interviews, it's really hard. It's a lot easier for folks. Oh, I'm leaving because I got this, this, I got an extra dollar an hour. I got this great opportunity over here. This is closer to all these external factors. The reality is when I look at engagement, the single biggest driver of, of people being engaged and loving their job, I think it, it's, it's really how, how, good of a job does their leader do, keeping them engaged, getting them engaged, caring for them, developing them, investing in them. And that's what I think the, the the sort of secret sauce is, if you will, it's having leaders that can create a consistent experience for your team.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about your leadership team a little bit more? Because they, I imagine from 10 to 110 in revenue that the composition of your management team and your executive team must have gone through maybe a couple iterations throughout that process. Can you talk through some of those iterations and that
2: growth? Yeah, sure. So back in 2015, you know, we were a very flat organization, right? There's, there's 40 people on the bus, you know, you have a manager meeting and you had everybody in the room and one meeting once a week and disseminating information was easy. It was always easy to have personal relationships with everybody on the team as we progressed over time, I think one of the things I wish I would have done a little bit sooner was invest earlier and more heavily in developing high potential folks, or or some of those existing leaders that were with us when we were at ten million, because it's it's hard when you when your your business is growing so quickly, you need leaders who can grow their their capacity, their contribution as leaders just as quickly as the the, the organization scaling, so they don't get left behind, and we haven't always been able to do that, and it's been it's been challenging. In different places, and it's led to some tough conversations. Today, I've got my senior leadership team—folks that, that report directly to me—are six folks: GM of our St. Louis operation, GM of our Nashville operation, who's our VP of new markets, wearing the interim GM hat, and then I have our functional leaders: our, our CFO, or CMO, or CHRO. As I think about the the backgrounds of those leaders, one thing that's been really cool is. Some folks on my leadership team, you know have have big degrees and 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 mbas and and have a pedigree that looks great on a resume. Others started their career busting up concrete as as a, a laborer on our underground team, had a high school GED, but was committed to be the best at whatever role you put them in, and had an insatiable do- desire to learn, strong intellectual curiosity very charismatic, strong leader. So I'm proud to have a team that has folks that come from all different backgrounds. And I think what it shows in our business is we choose people for leadership roles based on merit and based on their contribution and their results, not not what letter, what degrees they have, what background they have. And I think it's just important for us to make sure that we're spotting high potential talent and helping them realize their full potential as, as they grow. The, the last thing I'll say on leadership is We have so many, you know, you look today, there's, I think there's 60 people in our business who have a direct report, right? What we'll call at least one direct report who's in a leadership role. And I like to say that uh, in large part, a team member's experience of your company is a function of their experience with their direct manager, so if I have 60 different leaders that that provide largely 60 somewhat different unique experiences in working for them, how do I make sure that that we as an organization, as an employer, can think about how we can be consistent in the way that we treat people, we coach people, we develop people? So we've spent a lot of time creating content and building a curriculum that we call the Leadership Foundation that we enroll all of our leaders in so that we can we can ensure that, that culture and quality and reputation don't become casualties on the side of the road as we continue to experience 30 plus percent organic growth each year.
0: What do you do to make, make sure that consistency with direct reports stays that way, but also allows you to surface high performers? So up and comers who are in one position, but you think they have potential for leadership or just moving up. Like what systems within your process are designed to find those people?
2: There's a there's a a formal talent review process, but in particular, it, that process starts with your year end reviews, where we do. Uh, there's a, a numerical rating process where we're we're rating folks up against all of our values, in addition to sort of rating folks against the the metrics or KPIs that exist in their role, and then we we get that picture, we get all those ratings, they go into a system that then gives us as an organization complete organization-wide visibility of all the different teams. And, and sometimes we have to normalize. You might have a manager who generally rates really easily or high, and you might have somebody who rates really difficult. So there's a normalization process. But then we look out across our business at the end of those year interviews, and we can see who those folks are that are scoring really high, that are that are super highly rated, that are, that are big impact players. And they might be somebody who's working as a runner in the warehouse today, or they might be a mid-level manager, but that helps us to say who are those folks that we need to make sure we don't we don't leave behind or that we're not missing the opportunity to pull them up and give them more responsibility. But how we can do that as an organization is we had to standardize our, our the way that we give feedback, the way that we evaluate folks, the way that we have tough conversations. And so we put a lot of tools in place around one-on-ones, these coaching cards which basically take every one of our values, we have five of them, and distills each value into a one-page document that shows what it means to demonstrate that value, not demonstrate that value, and what it looks like when that value is overdone. And those coaching cards give us sort of a common language in our business to understand what each of these values mean and how they show up every day. So we just had to put in a lot of structure that allowed us to assess talent in a standardized way. And create some consistency around the way we were we were promoting folks, recognizing folks, developing folks.
0: So within executive teams and CEOs I've I've talked with on the podcast, a lot of them will talk about how at certain points in their business, their management team needed to expand or or change somewhat. And someone who is great getting from 10 to 40 million in revenue isn't going to be the person for getting to a hundred and beyond. How do you evaluate on a Quarterly or monthly or yearly basis, how your management team is fitting and performing within the company, and how does it? How do they fit with your broader ambitions as a company?
2: Yeah, my leader specifically.
0: Any of them? Like, what? what if you have a standard way of analyzing fit for your ambition?
2: Yeah, here's here's where I'll say I, I think where we've made mistakes before is you don't want to hire, and this is any leadership role, you don't want to hire for the person that you need today that's good enough to do the job well just today. We know we have now confidence in sort of the trajectory we're on. We're assuming success in the way that we we, we invest in our business and make decisions in our business. And I think as a part of assuming success, we need to say, okay, well, that means in five years, our organization could be two times the size it is today, three times the size it is today. So rather than hire the leader that's going to do good enough today, let's hire the leader that's going to be an exceptional leader when our business is two or three times the complexity size scale that it is today. And let's just invest more heavily earlier uh, than we otherwise would in sort of bringing that talent into our business that we need to operate at the level we aspire to be. So what that means is sometimes when you don't do that, there's, there's a lot of, you have to say, okay, well, this is the person and here's their skill set today. Do they have the capacity to get where I need them to be? And if they have the capacity, let's invest in them and get them there. But if they don't have the capacity and we say, you know what, despite all their best efforts, I don't think they have the capacity to be the leader. We need them to be in this role. So let's, let's treat them with dignity and respect and talk about what role they can be in, what, what seat on the bus is a better fit for their skills and for their contributions. But you just have to not back away from those conversations. Those conversations are super uncomfortable and they're never easy. But, you know, I I used to say a good example of people focus in our business overdone, that coach, that value that gets overdone, people focus is one of our values. We say, oh, well, we're, we're letting that person stay in that role because We're we're being people-focused and giving them all the opportunity in the world to to get better and grow. And I said, is that people-focused? Well, what about the the 30 people that work for them that are having a negative experience or missing the opportunity to grow, advance, develop, build a more successful team or business because there's a leader over them that's not as effective as the organization requires? So those are just tough conversations that, that organizations that are most successful don't shy away from. You have to be able to walk into those things head on and be honest with each other, with everybody on the team about what each of our limitations and strengths and skills and contributions can be. There was a Stanford CEO panel from one of their search fund
0: conferences a few years ago. And two of the folks, two of the CEOs on the panel, Chris Hendrickson and Andrew Saltoon, were talking about... The, the 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 tier of manager that they were working on or, or looking to hire. And Andrew was running a business that was a you know, couple of scales ahead of, of Chris's. And one thing he did was he invited Chris to come see one of his managers at the larger business. And so he could look at, you know, how does this role look in the future? What's the characteristics? What skills do they have? Knowing that maybe you can't hire that person today, but you can at least have a peer to compare against and see okay, like, yeah, I know what the future looks like at this scale point in my business. I need to have this type of manager with these skills and these experiences. Have you done anything like that to figure out, to make sure that this is, in fact, the person who not only can do the job today, but is ready for your greater scale down the road? Like, What are some ways you figure out, is this actually the right person who can, in fact, get to that scale point?
2: Yeah. So when we're, when we're hiring a senior leader into our business... Someone director or above, we partner with some third parties who are great at providing sort of executive assessments. And they're looking at a number of things in those assessments around cultural fit and also role fit uh, within our organization. and they they measure critical thinking ability. these These assessments are accompanied by interviews. But ultimately, we, we like to just sort of create a rigorous process on the front end to confirm we're getting the right person. And we receive those recommenda- recommendations or not sometimes, not recommended from those third parties. But we just try and spend a little bit of time, a little extra time on the front end. And maybe that means there's three, four, five, or six different interviews or discussions. And there's there's four or six or eight hours of, of assessments that, that we put folks through. But we'll spend the time on the front end. And then on occasion, we, we've hired folks through completely outsourced executive search firms who know our business well, who who we've had some relationships with, and we've had some success finding, finding great talent through those search firms, too.
0: How do you know when to use a search firm?
2: Yeah, you know, I wrestle with this because most, here's how I think about it. Most folks aren't, when you have an opening and you post your job, I don't think most folks are are the best talent in the market is out there looking for job postings on LinkedIn and, and applying to jobs. I think the best talent in the market is in a role where they're kicking butt and creating value and doing great things. And sometimes those those search firms, executive search firms, they've cultivated these sort of longstanding open relationships with with different executives where there's there's just intermittent dialogue, and there's always sort of a toe in the water, if you will, for some of these executives. so you can you can access a subset of potential candidates that I don't think you get when you just post a job on LinkedIn or whatnot or on on different job boards. The other way that we we try and get talent, so if, if it's not through an executive search firm, we we outreach a lot. we We look at businesses that we respect a ton. That we think are awesome. In whatever, you know, if it's a customer experience manager role, we look at organizations that are awesome at customer service and run really sophisticated call center or CX operations, and we'll target those things. Shoot, I get on LinkedIn, and my wife will make fun of me because I'll be in bed at nine o'clock at night, like scrolling LinkedIn, dropping messages into people's in- inbox if I think they could be a great candidate for an open we have an opening that we have. But that's I think you get you get the best people by by being proactive about recruiting. Every leader in our business is a recruiter is what we like to say.
0: I love that. I want to go just one layer deeper. How do you choose a executive search firm? Because If that hire, of course, that, the hires that they're making and informing your decision on have a huge impact in your business side. So I imagine you want a top tier search firm, but how do you go about evaluating a search
2: firm? Yeah. So we've been, we were lucky in that the, the firm that we use for executive search, they, they have sort of a, a suite of different services they offer to middle market businesses. And we had a relationship with them through their uh, uh, sort of board, uh, advisory board or fiduciary board facilitation practice. So they, they assist with uh, one one person at that firm sits on our board, but they also facilitate our board and help with board preparation. So, uh, we had the benefit of having a firm that, that knew our business really well, had a, a relationship with our business, who also happened to have an executive search practice that, that was good in, in in the space that we were looking to hire. So, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do get nervous when you think about hiring you know, a, a search firm. How do you know their credentials? Because everybody's going to tell you they've got great candidates, and everybody's going to tell you they can fill a role for you because they're all great salespeople. But how the heck do you know who's really good?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's a big question that's important to get right. It's kind of like finding a an attorney or, or CPA. Like some of these service providers are they have a high impact in your business, and it's not always clear exactly how to best evaluate them. Yeah, that's right. Has Nextar been helpful with any playbooks around evaluating not just service providers or not just search firms, but any other service provider you might use? You know, they
2: have a network of strategic partners, and those generally are geared around like product specific vendors or some service providers. There, there's some, I think, coaching and training strategic partners but i don't know that they do have a strategic partner in the executive search world i will say this in the home service space it has become really competitive I, you know i think it's no secret right how 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 much interest there is among financial sponsors among among private equity firms to to establish a foothold in the home service world and as a result the best operating talent the, the, the folks the operators the gms the market presidents who are leading 30 40 50 100 million dollar markets and locations for these these consolidators those folks are really well compensated and they're given a lot of upside and so it, it's just made it really tight on the, the 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 leadership market if you if you're a if you're out there now looking for someone to come run your your 10 or 20 or 30 million dollar operation who's going to be a rock star and a high performer you're competing against some of the biggest private equity players in the country who are, are, are in the home service space, who are able to offer some really, really enticing compensation packages to these operators.
0: Yeah, we've talked before about the interest from financial sponsors in HVAC and home services broadly. How have you seen that market change over the last kind of call it five years or so?
2: You know, I, I think we're still in the, maybe the sixth inning. Of, of sort of the consolidation game in the the HVAC and, and plumbing world, you, you now have several players right that are that are north of a billion dollars in revenue. You're seeing enterprise values continue to rise. Some of these these large organizations now have multi billion dollar enterprise values. There are more financial sponsors that want a foothold in the space than there are platform quality companies available for them to buy, and so what you're seeing particularly among high quality businesses that are at scale is multiples have, have remained really strong in this space because there's so few targets it's a supply and demand dynamics right is is there's so few quality platform quality assets out there in the in the marketplace that the you're still seeing transactions happening in the last 6 months there's been transactions that are still at 20 times ebitda for those really high quality Businesses that are out there, but I think you're seeing some softening when you go downstream and you're looking at the the $10 million business or the $20 million business, the the, the businesses between you know $750,000 of EBITDA and, and $2 million of EBITDA. I think you're seeing some softening on on willingness to pay downstream, but still, I mean, the math at the end of the day for these consolidators, they're able to they're they're valued at 20 times that they should hypothetically be willing to pay right up. 20 times they should be willing to pay 18 times and still accretive even for these small businesses. So I think I think some of these early consolidators are going going to have really successful, amazing exits. but I also think what we haven't seen yet in the industry is a, a noteworthy failure of significance. You haven't seen a consolidator who's had the wheels come off the bus where, where they've had turnover, leadership, volatility and leadership, talent exit, a business unit fail, you haven't seen a lot of those yet, but I, I think some of those may be in the making, right? Every one of these consolidators have a, have a little bit different of a playbook. Some are really focused on building depth of leadership talent. Some are really focused on, on operating these businesses more effic- efficiently, but some are just playing the multiple arbitrage game. And they were just buying a bunch of shit at, at 10 times, putting it all together and hoping to sell it at 20 times before the music stopped. Well, guess what? The music stopped for a lot of these businesses. And, and I think there could be some folks here in the next six months or 12 months who don't have such a successful story to tell.
0: When you say that there could be some consolidators, you know, fail at some point, like where are some places you've seen consolidators, maybe not fail, but at least things go wrong. Like what are some reasons that consolidators have challenges and run into difficulties in their companies?
2: Yeah, I think the dynamic that's the biggest risk to a lot of the consolidators is this sort of owner-centric, owner-dependent organizations, and, and that happens even at, at when you get into ten or twenty million dollar businesses. So the example, the classic example, is you have the the first the owner sells his business, and he rolls uh, like most owners are required to do, rolls a significant piece of equity into the new the new entity, the new deal. And that owner is incentivized to to keep everyone on board, focused on retention, focused on culture, focused on making things transition smoothly because there's still a, a significant incentive for them to make sure that sort of everything goes well right up until that next transaction or bite and I think what'll be interesting is when a lot of those next bites start happening, and you have original founder owners who are no longer in the cap table, and certainly no longer showing up at the office, or not at all a visible presence in their organization, and all suddenly you have a, a a new Ivy League MBA that got popped into the business, you know, that's the the, the Michigan, the Midwest-based business, or. And nothing against Ivy League NBA's, but you, you get the point, right? And there's 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 new leadership that that's bringing in new accountability, new pressures, new goals, aggressive budgets, and and where's where's founder Bob, who I've known for 20 years, who's been been a, a staple of this place? He's out of the picture. I think that's where the the challenge will, will really show up because at the end of the day, we're still in a very labor constrained environment. The best skilled trades talent has options. They want to work for organizations that are that that take really good care of them and that they that the purpose and the way they operate resonates with them. And when these founders are all nowhere to be found and they're taken out of the cap table and it's all new professional management that's getting dropped in, I think a lot of these organizations, their their metals going to get tested. Can they can they keep leading these these blue collar service businesses in a way that that makes their business an employer of choice, or are they not going to win win over talent because of the way that they think about operating these
0: businesses? And debt certainly becomes a larger factor in those PE backed companies. How do you, how would you say your view your view of debt is different from your PE backed peers?
2: Yeah, well, you know what's funny. That, that, my, one of my favorite quotes, it's made by Howard Marks. Howard Marks is a prolific, really brilliant investor. And he, he, he says, he goes, did you ever hear about the guy who's eight feet tall but drowned crossing the river that's four feet deep on average? And, and the idea is, right, you need to think about building your business that doesn't survive when conditions are average, right? And, and we tend to look at average, but that's built to, to survive when you cross that deepest point of the river. And so when you over lever, I think you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, jeopardizing your ability to cross that river when it gets deepest, when things are most challenging and things get tough. And as a private business, I don't have access to outside capital. When I do get to that deep point that I can, I can get a, a step stool to make it across. Right. So we have to make sure that the way we build our business is, is such that, that we're going to survive when we cross that river, no matter how deep it gets and be prepared for sort of the worst of environments which means tenor- generally means we want to be very prudent users of debt there, there's there's good ways to use it and there's not great good there's not good ways to use it so we're not completely debt averse when we think about growth capital and accessing capital to grow our business but we're certainly not super uh, excited to to sort of increase leverage on our balance sheet sure
0: yeah it's a tool like anything else how how do you use debt as a tool and source of capital in a, in a prudent way for what your goals are?
2: Yeah. So I look at if, where do I have, where can I least expensively access debt within my organization? So I think about where to start, right? The, the least expensive ways to access debt are secured, facilities that are that are asset backed. So I can finance trucks, right? Trucks is where you can get some of the lowest rates because it's the least risky for a bank, right? Because they've they've got the they've got the lien. They 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 hold the title to the vehicle until their their notes paid off. But as you think about so say I exhaust all my sort of asset based lending, then all suddenly I'm stuck doing cash flow lending or 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 enterprise value lending and you just see the spread that banks will charge you the premium. Uh, the risk premium goes up for those non asset based facilities so we kind of draw the line we will use debt in connection with financing sort of senior secured bank debt asset backed debt because we can get the best pricing on that so i'm you know up until maybe a year ago you know you could finance trucks at 2% you know, i was getting trucks at 2.1 2.2% we should be doing that all day because i think i could put put that money to work elsewhere and and get a better return than that 2% Today, I would say, even, even in this interest rate environment, we're financing our vehicles. at we're, we're, we're choosing to do floating rate notes at this point, but we're financing our vehicles at, at SOFR plus 150 in there. So that might be 6.5%. And as, after your interest tax shield, I kind of look at my, my true cost of debt at maybe 45 maybe right? And I still think that's a, a low enough level at that least expensive tranche of debt you can access that, that we want to continue to do that
0: what about areas for quick access to debt so like stuff like credit lines like where does that come in with your business
2: yeah so we do have a a, a, a at the end of the day the way i, I what i would recommend to, to small business operators is you want to ask for credit facilities when you don't need them right so we want to put in lines of credit we we want to put in these facilities and ask when when things are rosy when we don't need it when we have no leverage because if you wait until you really need that facility to go to the bank and say hey I need this I need this facility by by 2 weeks uh, that puts you in a different puts you in a bad place and you're certainly not going to get get the terms that you would have gotten had you asked for it when you didn't need it so yes we 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 put in as big of a facility as our bank will give us and then we tend not to use it very heavily, right? We we'll dip into it because I don't want to carry cash on my balance sheet. So we sweep excess cash out of our organization every month, but but then we we, we kind of hover around zero, right? Plus or minus a couple million bucks up and down on, on that line of credit. But we don't like to tap or get anywhere near full utilization on on that line. The other way we think about it, I, I give you an example. My my father, you know his. Uh, I think a lot of folks in his generation had the mindset of debt is terrible, debt is bad. You stay away from it. And not only is debt bad, yeah, right. Uh, not only is debt bad, but you got to keep this big cash bucket, this big cash reserve on 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 the the sidelines to make sure that you always have this rainy day fund ready to go. And I've kind of turned that a little bit on its head and said, you know, what I think that generation was saying or what my dad was saying is what you need is access to liquidity when you need it. You don't necessarily need access to cash. And I said, well, let's eliminate this cash drag on our balance sheet, because for years we would keep this pool of cash that was, again, up until a year ago, yielding us near zero. So we keep this big pool of cash in the event we needed it, but it was a, a drag on our return. So we started saying, let's put this capital to work elsewhere. So we sort of have a, a, a sister investment vehicle. And part of that investment vehicle is a public equity strategy. And we have a facility, a, a credit facility against that public equities portfolio where we can draw on demand up to 65% of the value of that portfolio at SOFR plus one, right? So we, we've preserved liquidity while also eliminating the cash drag on our balance sheet. And then it put, put that money to work, right? And so that's that's how we think about liquidity. We have we have facilities in place at several different places within our real estate business, within our operating business, within our investment company, but we'd never like to dip too deep in those facilities. Those are just giving us access to pools of liquidity when, when we need them and so that we can be opportunistic when good investment opportunities arise.
0: And in those investments, that public equity portfolio, is that primarily individual stocks or treasury ETFs or broad market ETFs? What kind of goes into that?
2: Yeah, so there's there's sort of two sets of activities that happen in there. The public equity strategy is all index oriented and I would say 80% of our public equity exposure is just in, in a S&P 500 direct indexing, taxless harvesting strategy that, that sits with Goldman Sachs. And, we like that strategy. Recent market volatility over the last several years through COVID has allowed the the sort of tax loss harvesting feature to to perform really well for us. But that's predominantly on the public equity side. That's what the strategy is. And then in that same vehicle, we participate across in the alternative capital markets across a number of different Private investment opportunities typically as a, a, a limited partner in, in a number of different funds. So, think everything from venture capital to life sciences to traditional lower middle market buyout or different real estate strategies. So, just thinking of ways we can continue to diversify and strengthen our balance sheet as, as an enterprise so that we can continue to, to have stability across the global balance sheet and make investments in our operating business and, and in support of other growth initiatives.
0: And you mentioned a real estate piece as well. What is that? Does that real estate have any connection to Hoffman Brothers as a business or is this broad real estate investing?
2: Yeah, so my brother and I made a decision. You know, a lot of business operators, well, when the business as well, they distribute cash to shareholders and then those shareholders kind of do their own thing with with those that that, that liquidity. We've made a decision as an organization and as as the two shareholders should say, you know what, we're going to keep everything together. So when we sweep cash out of our operating business. We're, we're sort of keeping it on our combined balance sheet and making decisions together, investing together, saving together, preparing to weather the the storm together. And, and so that's the way we've thought about it. So when we distribute cash out of Hoffman Brothers, it goes into our, our sort of investment vehicle or it goes into our, we have a real estate holding company that purchases predominantly class B office properties we've got a couple dozen tenants roughly half a million square feet over there but that's been a way for us to be opportunistic most of those properties we've acquired off market so they weren't they weren't brokered or being marketed but we found good opportunities for us to to acquire these these buildings the thing that makes real estate a little bit more attractive to us perhaps than a traditional buyer is that we have this this business that that has the capability to remedy any heating cooling issues plumbing issues electrical issues and so we can look at a property at an opportunity and see through a lot of the the deferred maintenance or, or other things that might chase off a traditional buyer because we're not scared of the the three fifty ton rooftop units that are twenty-five years old. If anything, that helps us negotiate a more attractive entry price point. And then we have the capacity to remedy that.
0: Yeah, I know we we talked about family office structure, which we're kind of diving into here. What would you say as a family office are your goals for for your operation,
2: do you have a a set vision for that that's separate from the business? No, we have a couple team members that that work now outside of the operating business. But at the end of the day, I, I, all the activities that we, we've sort of begun to do outside of the operating business, those all take a backseat to continuing to perpetuate the success of Hoffman Brothers, the operating business. I think it is a benefit to Hoffman Brothers to have a really strong diversified balance sheet because it allows us to when we need it be able to move capital back into the organization, the operating business, when those opportunities arise for us to to enter a new geography, to acquire a business, which we have not done yet. But but I, I'd say those those other activities, although they're important and they're advancing sort of our diversification goals and objectives, they're really there. And they really exist in our view as shareholders to be able to support the operating business and ensure that we can continue to pour heavily into that and sustain the trajectory that that organization's on. So as an example, we've used that line of credit at that investment vehicle to fund our new market when we went to Nashville, right? So we said, you know what, we we, we built a, a $50 million top line business in about 36 months, and it took about a $3 million cash outlay to be able to to fund the business, to get to that point, to get to that scale. And that's a good example of how we can sort of tap the facility available at that, that investment vehicle to make investments in the operating business without having to leave pools of cash in the operating business.
0: Yeah, I remember last time we also talked about the strategy of investing in acquiring companies within Hoffman Brothers. You just talked about kind of building one from scratch in a new location. How do you think about the two potential opportunities of building new locations from scratch versus acquiring also as a differentiated buyer, because you're not PE backed, you have a family office background or you're a family run business. You're not backed by a private equity buyer who's going to turn the business over in the future. Like I, I bet both have interesting places to live within your organization.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think we we can offer a strategic alternative to traditional private equity for the right seller who who sort of values our story and, and values what we bring to the table. But I, I will say we have not done any meaningful acquisitions in in Hoffman Brothers really near zero. We did one small asset purchase in twenty fifteen of a, of a plumbing business, but we haven't done any any meaningful acquisition. And part of the reason we haven't is it, candidly, is an organization that does not intend to sell; that intends to remain private. It just the math doesn't pencil when when these ten million dollar businesses with two of EBITDA are are people are writing checks for twenty five or thirty million dollars for the the math doesn't pencil as a buyer who who would need to amortize all of that debt and return pay all that debt back. It, it it would pencil if I was if I was do I was completing these acquisitions with balloon notes, interest only payments, and just wanted to play the arbitrage game where I'll go pay 10 times for some of these other smaller businesses, quickly add another another twenty million of EBITDA and then I'm gonna go sell it for twenty times, but I'm just not playing that game. That's that's a different game that that we're not playing as a private business. So acquisitions just haven't made sense. Now, where, where it's gotten interesting and where we're having some interesting conversations today is how do we take sort of the the success that we've been able to create within the verticals, the home service verticals that we're in today, and translate that into some parallel home service verticals. where so really, we're interested in, in pest control. We think we can do that organically very well. And we're also having a conversation about Another parallel service line with a potential seller who values, values us as an a independent private organization and values what we could bring to the table, and therefore is not just worried about purchase price maximization today. And, and, and candidly, those, those sellers are a better fit for us.
0: You mentioned like the math of a $3 million investment creating a $50 million revenue business in Nashville. 15. How rep? Oh, 15. Oh, pardon yeah, yeah. me. I was like, "Wow!" Man, I this wish is,
2: that would have been this amazing. Is a no-brainer. <laughs> Shoot, yeah, yeah. I'd do that all day. I'll still do fifteen all day, but fifty, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so that, like, how replicable is that? Like, were there certain advantages you had in Nashville that allowed that return, or do you feel like that's something you could do across the Midwest and nationwide as you as you wanted to?
2: Yeah, the constraint to continuing to enter new geographies, and, and we we intend to. It's on our roadmap. We have the next two locations identified that we think think are right fit for us the right characteristics there but at the end of the day we can absolutely replicate that we have the playbook i'm, I'm sitting today in our, our new shared services center where we've pulled together about 80 team members who support more than one location and provide uh, all the different sort of shared services that include our customer experience team and call center inside sales function it marketing accounting back office and so we, we've have we have now this capability as we enter a new market where we can lean on this pooled resource, this shared resource, to do everything other than delivering the services to our customers. So it makes the lift to go into a new mo- new market a little bit lighter. When when really all you have to focus on in that new market is is warehousing operations and delivery of services to customers. So we intend to intend to keep doing that. the The, the limitation is really just leadership talent. It it takes a unique individual to go and execute at a high level on our operating playbook who can be the visionary in that market, the recruiter, the champion. It just takes, it takes a real talented person to do it. And and unfortunately we, and I think most businesses don't have a, a bench of 20 folks like that who are ready to go deploy into, into entering these new markets. And so that's our constraint. I, I think the one thing that we can do that's, um, still gives us access to new geographies that maybe is a little bit lighter lift is we're contemplating a, a spoke model around our two existing hubs. So we have St. Louis, we have Nashville, but if we were to open say in Jefferson city, Missouri, about two hours away, we could have a field manager level or department leader level, local leader that could run that operation don't quite need as, as senior of a, an executive to, to run sort of a spoke location. And then we could lean on the shared services pool for all those things I mentioned, accounting, marketing, all the back office stuff. And then also lean on the hub for all your logistical support. So your replenishments, your staging, your deliveries. So it sort of lessens sort of the, the investment needed to start to serve customers in these, these spoke markets, and you're still getting access to all these new households in this new geography, but it's a lower lift and a quicker path to profitability. And so we're we're thinking about some of those, those spoke opportunities that we think we could deploy more near-term than the third hub.
0: Yeah, and leaning into leadership a little bit more, you acquired a school, the school we've talked about here and there throughout this conversation. You talk about that, acquisition and some of the development you've done around your university
2: program? Yeah. Yeah. So what we bought was the building that a school was in and it's a a 40,000 square foot building. It's, it's perfect. It's set up with classrooms, a gymnasium, like a perfect setup for us to convert it into learning labs and, and, and sort of our intended use. But we, we bought that school, we hired an 11 year veteran from Teach for America, which is a great organization, educational organization. She was the local executive director of Teach for America in St. Louis, joined our team, dedicated some amazing trainers and 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 tapping different internal resources, pulling them into HBU as needed. But under her leadership, we're, we're building HBU to really serve three different purposes. One, the first is to create a pipeline for entry-level talent that wants to enter the trades. How do we sort of reduce the barriers of of creating an opportunity for someone in our community to access these amazing jobs and careers we can offer. So we have a 20-week, 100% paid pipeline where our graduates graduate and enter into a uh, independent contributor role. The second bucket beneath HBU is, well, how do we take our team members, the folks that are already on our team, and continue to elevate and enhance their skills? So how do I take Field professional who knows furnaces and air conditioners really well, but wants to learn how to work on boilers and geothermal and ductless, how do I make sure I'm giving them those opportunities to continue to grow in advance? And then the third bucket beneath HBU is what we've already talked about, which is that that leadership foundation curriculum and leadership and talent development. And so HBU sort of serves our business across those three sort of pillars, if you will, and we're excited for for the impact that that will continue to have as we grow. What
0: are some feeder sources for the school? Obviously, you have current employees who will go to the university, but do you have partnerships with like local colleges and universities to, to get them into the university as a way to enter the organization at a certain level?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. We've had a lot of success with some other entry-level positions in our business like we have a runner position in our warehouse where where you we, it gives us the benefit of being able to observe sort of the the soft skills of these these team members for a period of time before we put them into the the program, but we we see you know small things like do they show up on time? Do they communicate really well? Are they reliable? Do they work hard? Are they ambitious? Do they want to learn and grow and do more? And that gives us a great sort of feeder pipeline. So we've had success pulling folks from our runner pool into the university, but we go to high school career fairs, different different sort of job opportunities, sort of job activities or events throughout the community. But I would say really where we've gotten most folks are referrals. People, somebody that you know at church, somebody that, that lives in your neighborhood, somebody... A, a friend's kid who's just finishing up high school and, and is looking for an entry point into the trades. A, a, and I think that referral network, I really think has been probably the strongest. I think that that's most of our graduates, I think, have come from referrals.
0: That's pretty impressive. Moving into closing questions, what belief
2: or idea have you changed your mind on? We used to be a super strong promote from within organization. And I think in general, that's a really good thing. And in particular, when you're promoting into roles where you already have expertise and you already have knowledge, but we used to do that almost to our, to a fault and almost to our own detriment. And what I've come to recognize is particularly as, as your organization's growing and, and you're you need a set of skills that just doesn't exist today in your organization. You really do have to look externally as you start to cross these milestones as an organization with respect to size and complexity. And so I think I've, I've, I've shifted my belief around, you know, always relentlessly focus on promoting from within to you need to take a balanced approach and make sure that you're, you're meeting the needs of the business first and foremost.
0: What's the best business you've ever seen?
2: Best business I've ever seen, I love this company, Dave and Dan Thrasher. They're in this organization called Tugboat Institute with me. They are a foundation repair business, a story not too dissimilar from our from our own. I think those those two brothers bought the business a little bit before we did. But I'll just say this because I want to respect their confidentiality, but their their top line is multiple times what ours is, and they've just got, an incredible vertically integrated foundation repair business called Thrasher, and then they also own Support Works. So when I said they vertically integrated, they now also manufacture the peering technology that goes into their their products or solutions that they're selling to customers. They're in Nebraska, and they've got an amazing office there. They've got an amazing team, an amazing culture, and they're also an organization that's committed to purpose-driven private ownership. But what a cool success story.
0: That's awesome. You know I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. Like I'm right in the state.
2: So I think I literally think they're in Omaha. Hold on. You gotta you gotta wait for me when I do this. Okay, they're right there with you. You should look up like their office that they built there is insane. It's like uh I mean it's like it, it looks like a, you know, Google's headquarters, but they're a foundation repair business. Uh uh That's but really cool. a, a remarkable business and a cool story. Two two great guys building a great business.
0: It's always exciting to find these businesses that maybe you've never heard of before, or like, yeah, I guess like obviously somebody builds foundations, but you never really imagine of like the companies and businesses behind that and the scale that they could be at. It's always a surprise to realize, oh, that company! I didn't realize that that company is like half a billion dollars (laughs) in (laughs) revenue. I just thought it was concrete. (laughs) There's so much more to it. Well, thank you, Chris, so much for coming on the podcast. I always enjoy our conversations together and I hope for many more and to hopefully get to St. Louis at some point or or meet you at one of these conferences one day. But thanks for sharing a little bit of time today.
2: Yeah, no, that's great. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Alex.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Hood & Strong, Ravix Group, Overly Risk Strategies, and Oakbourne Advisors for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast.